Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that contains an awful lot of stuff that result of a face swap between a chimpanzee corpse and a sea cucumber Nigel Farage would probably call the police about. This is episode 148, I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week, as it's announced that Britain's next Prime Minister will be decided by 160,000 mostly white, rich and male Tory membership in their 60s who mostly read the Telegraph or Daily Mail, I'm really, really concerned that it's only a matter of time before the country is led by Steely Dan. Depending on when you hear this, there'll be somewhere between six and two Conservative leadership candidates left. That's in the race. Uh, I mean, sadly, not just sort of alive. Or that'd mean there'd be some hope for the future of the UK. While the notion of televised debates and weeks of coverage, all for a new Prime Minister that most people can't vote for, did seem quite futile just a week ago, it's now clear that it was actually very necessary in order to mentally prepare us all for what will be a terrible, terrible few years, or however long it'll be until Britain sinks itself into the Irish Sea as an act of protest. Over the next few days, candidates will drop out after either not receiving enough support in the ongoing secret ballots, or maybe, like champion five-head Matt Hancock, just dropping out because they already know that no-one likes them. Hancock only just got enough votes to get through the first round and thought he'd quit while he was behind. It seems his policy of a time-limited backstop that's already been pitched and rejected didn't woo his colleagues who'd already heard and rejected it. There's something wonderful about a man who's previously vowed to take on social media companies realising that his career can't move forward as he hasn't got any friends. There is of course also the chance that the remaining candidates will just drop out after having a moment of clarity, realising that absolutely none of them are suitable leaders and that this appointment to Prime Minister of any single one of them would be simultaneously catastrophic and pointless for the entire United Kingdom. But based on the delusional self-aggrandising, contradictory, hypocritical and bullshit-filled race so far, it's far more likely that one of them will get hospitalised from trying so hard to appear sincere and human that they burst a blood vessel in their head and die. The first of the televised debates took place on Channel 4 on Sunday, on a set that looked as though it was designed for a taxing game show, but in fact was merely a jazzed-up pilot version of Conservatives Say the Most Horrifying Things. Jeremy Hunt, a man so devoid of depth that on a personality test he scores cardboard, kept saying that the only way to defeat the Brexit party was to do what they want, proving that hostage negotiator would be yet another job he'd be shit at. 
How does being the Brexit Party defeat the Brexit Party? And will he use the same tactic to beat Labour, the Lib Dems and the Greens like a political super scroll? Would the next general election just involve him shouting other parties' policies, resulting in the Conservatives being like a parliamentary convenience store that's full of all sorts of things, but never exactly what you actually need or want? Hunt's main push, though, which he tweeted after the show, was to improve social care, something that he actively didn't do when in charge of social care. He said every older person deserves to die with dignity and respect. We should be the party who sorts it out. Is anyone else worried that he has a planned time and date for exactly that? I'm not sure the membership would be keen for Jeremy to turn the whole party into a cross between Waco and a saga holiday. Bloated sea monkey Michael Gove said he was the candidate school nativity Snapchat filter Jeremy Corbyn would be scared of facing, but that is because looking directly at Gove's ancient congealed rice pudding face can induce nausea. Every time he looked straight down the camera, I had to willingly seal all orifices to stop three weeks of dinner from trying to leave. Gove said that he'd won the referendum, that he was a man in a hurry, and he basically said that he'd experienced everything, could achieve everything, known someone who'd suffered everything, and had been everywhere, all of which sound very much like the cocaine talking. If he's not still on drugs, how could he state with sincerity that in education he transformed schools and think that people will see that as a plus? On Gove's record, if he was in charge of the Transformers, they'd go from a car into a smouldering piece of useless shit that mostly ruined children's dreams. Dominic Raab, a composite of everything that pushes through the TV and Videodrome, kept talking about telegraphing the EU, seemingly unaware that we've moved beyond that technology-wise. I'm very worried that his leadership would involve sending a bar to Brussels by foot and suspending Parliament until they return. Raab kept saying that the EU had to believe no deal was still on the table, forgetting that again in Europe they also have TV and have met Raab before and will probably just distract him with a hoop and stick while going off to another room to talk to adults. Man who used his only magic wish to get a rugby ball for a head, Sajid Javid, said of the possibility of a no deal that he'd never walked into a room without the ability to walk out without signing. And that explains why he doesn't walk into a lot of rooms and will run away to Australia if things get tense. And the small alien inside of the alien's mouth in the film Alien, Rory Stewart, kept bringing out a weird analogy about how the Brexit negotiations were like him trying to fit too many bin bags in a bin, even though his wife was saying that it wouldn't work. An odd analogy, especially considering most of the Conservatives' Brexit ideas were already toxic trash to begin with, but despite that, they keep being endlessly recycled. Stewart said, believe in the bin, which I think means Parliament, or possibly the EU, or maybe just a bin, and he really thinks all the Tories should get in it, in which case I long for him to win, just so at the Tory conference in September he can walk on stage in a suit made of bin bags and try to reenact Stomp to complete silence. Stewart was trying to be the everyman, the voice of the people, saying that everywhere he'd been he felt a sense of palpable anger, but that ignored that it was likely because he was just in the way with his stupid fucking selfie stick. When Krishna and Guru Murphy asked the candidates what their weaknesses were, none of them said needing to feed on the blood of innocence as soon as the moon rises, so you know it was all bullshit. Krishnan asked Gove, isn't hypocrisy your biggest weakness? And Gove replied, no, I learned from my mistakes, instantly proving him right. The whole show could have been reduced to five minutes, with each candidate saying the main way to make the country better would be to reverse all the terrible, terrible things I did while in government, and then leave it at that, knowing that they absolutely wouldn't and would probably make it all worse. These gruesome caricatures of people continued more of the same tiresome crap at the lobby hustings on Monday. Stewart tried to be the moderate candidate, speaking of having a citizens' assembly for Brexit if Parliament can't decide, proving he definitely hasn't met or spoken to any real people on his travels, or he'd know that was an awful idea too. Stick to the bin, mate. Stick to the bin. 
Javid tried his best to insert any warmth into his personality, like how it sometimes seems crocodiles are smiling. He said that he's tried hard to communicate better, but that his dog Bailey is more popular than him. Great, let's let him run. I can't imagine Bailey would make any more of a dog's dinner of this than any of the other candidates. I think only Larry, the number 10 cat, would be remotely annoyed. And Bailey? What, named after the castle fortification with a curtain wall? I mean, you can see why Javid was gutted not to go to the state dinner. Sajid said that if Labour won, he didn't know who'd be first against the wall, journalists or Tories. And that's funny, as I bet he'd know exactly who'd be deported if he got into power. When asked about human Vuvuzela and US President Donald Trump retweeting skin wrapped around the Daily Mail comments section Katie Hopkins when she slagged off the London mayor and pocket politician Sadiq Khan, Jeremy Hunt said that he wouldn't have used the same language as Trump, but he agreed with the sentiment 150%. Great way to win over voters, that. Hey everyone, I only use big words to convey my racism and I don't understand maths. It was revealed in the Mail on Sunday that Hunt's wife likes to call him Mr Big Rice, which can only be because if you leave him standing in room temperature for a while, he makes you really ill. Meanwhile, Dominic Raab told journalists that the UK could weather any difficulties from a no-deal in a week where the M25 got sinkholes after some rain. He said Dublin and Brussels have politicised the issue of the Irish border, which, I mean, uh, oh, God, I mean, what even... The fucking... fucking hell. Just what are you? What are you? Then finally, Michael Gove, who insisted that none of the other candidates understand the politics of Ireland better than him, which, considering Raab's statements, is a very low bar. At the time, though, Gove did actually say that the Good Friday Agreement was like normalising the desires of paedophiles or Nazi appeasement, but to be fair, in his mind, that might mean he was behind it. I'm almost certain Gove once went into an O'Neill's and now assumes he's an expert, though that'd mean that he wouldn't listen to himself, and I see it now, hypocrisy is his weakness, but he totally thinks it's a strength. So far, the candidate winning the most backing has crossed between bulk from Super Ted and several Crufts rejects Boris Johnson, who seems to understand that the only way he'll win is to make absolutely sure no one hears or sees anything of him until it's all over. Channel 4 put out an empty podium to symbolise his lack of appearance, and he was nowhere to be seen for the lobby hustings. So either this is an uncharacteristic, shocking sign of self-awareness from Johnson, who realises that every time he opens his mouth, people remember he exists and automatically just feel awful, or he has a very savvy team around him who are hoping that everyone just forgets who he is entirely, which, in comparison to all the others, will make him the most likeable. It does mean that, so far, Boris has been the least awful person in the debates, but while the devil's greatest trick was to convince the world he didn't exist, everyone already and unfortunately knows Boris exists and that he has a habit of being a racist lying bigot. At his campaign launch last week, he dismissed questions about his ability to be leader when he makes statements such as Muslim women look like letterboxes by saying that that was just plain speaking, which I guess is why it's the opposite of anything someone grounded might say. But here's the thing, for people to forget that, they really mustn't see him anywhere anymore. I'm starting to feel that with these sorts of tactics, Boris is the best candidate for PM, but only on the basis that we'll never ever see or hear from him ever again. I mean, civil servants could just leave a bowl of pork scratchings and some brandy outside number 10, and they'll always be gone in the morning. But as for policies and plans, nothing will happen. Which again, in comparison to the last nine years of Conservative rule, would be an absolute blessing. Think of how popular Boris would have been if, as Mayor of London, he just never said a thing. Or during the Leave campaign, he just stood beside a blank red bus and gazed into space like a low-budget, middle-aged shit version of Drive. Or as Foreign Secretary, had shook the hands of foreign diplomats, but nothing more. And in France, they just really loved him on account of his obvious mime skills. 
More likely, though, he'll win and become Prime Minister because the Conservative Party are now full-on delusional and think it's perfectly fine to have a big fat fibber in charge because the US do, and hey, now the two countries can literally lie together in their special relationship. And if Boris crashes us out of the EU like we're a Japanese school kid playing rugby, the head of the civil service and man with default pain expression, Sir Mark Sedwell, said that the government is in pretty good shape to deal with a no-deal Brexit, actually. Except that HMRC have found that only 10% of British businesses are even remotely close to handling it. But hey, who cares if the government will all be fine, right? I mean, what the British public really want is a long period where PMQs can still happen, and while they're all shouting childish cheers and taking ages not to clarify anything, we'll all be too busy to watch as we're outside fighting for war. Water, and chances are Boris will be nowhere to be seen. Speaking of Brexit, MPs voted 309 to 298 against Labour's bid to try and get control of the parliamentary agenda in order to stop a no deal. I mean, phew, eh? Just imagine if Labour had control of Parliament for even one day, and before you know it, all those Tories and journalists would be against a wall of some sort. Whereas a no deal, at least Parliament would just continue as usual, so I can totally see the logic. Thankfully, without control of Parliament for a day, Labour will now have extra time to attack themselves, as they most enjoy doing, with Corbyn telling an education conference last week that the last 30 years of governments had all been the same when it came to inequality, which led to the only known sufferer of monochromitis, Tony Blair, to rise from his political grave and pick on the bit of the 30 years that he was involved in, which makes me think it's obviously a sore spot for him. I mean, if only Corbyn had said the last 30 years except for that little bit in the middle. You know, oh, it would have saved everyone a lot of trouble. Blair posted a video online where he said it's time to set the record straight, though he meant only on Corbyn's comments, not Iraq or anything like that. Don't be silly. Blair said that the Labour governments from 1997 to 2010 had been the most dramatic improvements to public services with the largest ever peacetime investment in them, which is odd as some of that wasn't peacetime as the UK had invaded Iraq. What do you mean you don't want to talk about that? Oh, Jesus, all right. Thing is, both him and Corbyn are actually right, as New Labour did do all that increased spending, but overall inequality didn't actually change much because they made the public sector really dependent on the private sector that it turned out was not very trustworthy at running itself. Who knew? Who knew? You can see why Tony 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 is a tad upset though, because he doesn't like being compared to Thatcher, who he said was an inspiration to him. But that's okay, because ultimately all anyone will remember is that Labour is a really broad church, but some people use it for community purposes, others mostly attend funerals and say it's everyone else's fault that they happened. Meanwhile, Blair just sort of hangs around in the crypt. Corbyn also made a statement there was no credible evidence that Iran were behind attacks on two tankers in the Gulf of Oman, saying that the UK should ease tensions in the area rather than fuel a military escalation. Jeremy Hunt said that Corbyn was pathetic saying such things, and it was almost certainly Iran, even though he probably has no idea where that is. The situation in Iran is quite complicated, and I don't really have time to go through it, but let me quickly explain it like this. Uh, Japan, Norway, France, Germany, and now Corbyn and the Labour Party say there's not enough evidence to say it was definitely Iran what did it. Donald Trump, who lies a minimum of five times a day and hates Iran, and Jeremy Hunt, who wants to kill old people, accepts racism if it's well-written and can't remember where his wife is from, say it's definitely Iran. I hope that sort of clears things up. In other news, proof that you can deepfake an entire person, Chukaramuna, has now joined the Lib Dems, in the knowledge that at least he and them won't be the worst coalition that they've been part of. Amuna had previously tweeted that he'd never be able to forgive the Lib Dems for what they did to his area, but as he's staying MP for Streatham, despite the multiple party change, maybe he's just trying a Jeremy Hunt and to defeat the Lib Dems, he has to become them. Theresa May, a woman with all the charisma of a dentist's waiting room, said that she will stay as an MP after she leaves number 10, with the aim of sitting on the backbench and giving some people some of the same medicine that they gave her. Presumably that just means that she'll hand out cough sweets. Before she goes, though, May has announced that the UK will become the first nation to reduce carbon emissions to zero by 2050, which Conservative MPs say tie the hands of her successor and may scupper their economic plans. 
I mean, will it? I mean, if Jeremy Hunt wins, which he won't, but if he did, and he does make all those older people die with dignity and respect during his tenure, tenure, then that's already quite a lot of reduced carbon emissions, isn't it? And a whole ton of cost savings, too. And lastly, Friday was two years since the horrific tragedy of the fire at Grenfell Tower. With over 70 families without homes and dangerous flammable cladding still on so many properties, you'll be glad to hear that the government acknowledged the anniversary with some green lights shone on Parliament. Brilliant. That's going to help everyone. I bet they were the same ones used for Mental Health Awareness Week as well. Why use your expensive lighting for one vapid hollow statement about people you've abandoned when you can use it for two? And comedian, a person who tells jokes, Joe Brand, who's a comedian, a proper comedian, got into trouble after making a joke, one of those joke things, on a comedy programme, which is a comedy programme specifically about making dangerous jokes, on Radio 4 during its comedy section, where she said, in reference to the milkshaking of far-right activists, why bother with a milkshake when you can get hold of some battery acid? Before then apologising and saying of course she wouldn't do that. Sense of humour failure personified, Nigel Farage kicked off a reported brand to the police for incitement of violence. Because if anyone's going to up arms and take to the streets, it's a Radio 4 comedy audience, isn't it? I mean, where will it end? What if Desert Island Discs encourages true Britons to emigrate to an atoll with only a handful of sounds? What if the shipping forecast means people showers doggers or Vikings moderately? Where will it end? Yeah, Parpol Broads. I was really late here in Partly Towers. Uh, this week's episode has taken ages to write. I'm um, trying to work out how to basically say, oh, we're really fucked in as many different ways uh, to last week as possible. It does get kind of tricky after a while. You sort of run out of um, all the different analogies for things. But here we are, uh, and it's late. It's so late that this bit is going to be full of less chat than usual. Um, I'll get the pleasantries in, though, because I'm a gent. How are you? good i mean i'm assuming that you said good even though boris johnson might be prime minister which really means bad though i sort of feel like it's who we deserve um you know like do you ever get that thing like last week when it rained an awful lot uh it was almost biblical i was sort of looking out the window going yeah probably deserve this i was expecting to see a little arc with just sort of david attenborough and moira stewart on it i'm assuming it would be those two um but you know boris johnson similarly i sort of feel like well you know it feels like the entire country is kind of stuck on a zip wire trying to look cool because we're too unaware to be embarrassed so he's probably about right. Sorry, I'm meant to be keeping this chat brief, aren't I? Um, I was in Tunbridge Wells on Friday, a very Tory area, and the audience booed every single Conservative candidate when I mentioned them. So that's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, it, I'm kind of almost pro a Boris prime ministership if uh, it means the entire implosion of the Conservative Party. Um, you know, do you know what I mean? It's a bit like sort of having... Um, uh, which, you know, a vaccination. You get a little jab of some shit uh, in order for a much greater good in the forerun. Uh, it's not... It, no, that doesn't work, does it? Because he's a massive jab of an intense amount of disease. Anyway, sorry, I'm keeping it brief. I'm getting brief. What am I doing? What am I going on about? Um, brief, 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 brief. And I'm keeping it brief. I've got to stop saying the word brief. Listen, thank you all for listening and tuning in this week. Um, and a special thank you this week uh, to Paddy, who gave the show a one-star review on iTunes, saying it was another Mr Angry over Brexit disguised as comedy other than preaching to the converted not really sure what this achieves though um mr angry over brexit is uh, my least favorite mr men book um but thanks for listening paddy i've got a feeling that you heard all of three minutes uh last week where i insulted probably nigel farage or someone and then got a bit sad but at least he realized that comedy was a part of it so that's nice um i'm not sure podcasts are meant to achieve anything paddy but preaching to the converted can be a fairly useful solidarity tool plus if it upsets people so much that they write bizarre mr men book stories in my reviews 
then I think that's all good. I mean, it's still a review, isn't it? If you'd like to leave a better starred review, though, you can, of course, do that too on all the pod review apps. Or if, like, Upset Paddy, uh, you'd like to give a one-star review because I've made a joke about someone you like and it's all very confusing, um, then please just go shout at some pigeons or, I don't know, call the police. Also, if you fancy donating to the Kofi and Patreon, then links are in the pod blurb. And please just tell people you know to give this a listen. Yeah, just, just do it. Go on, just do it. I haven't got time. Think of a clever reason. Just go and bloody do it. Buy me a coffee. Tell someone a thing. Quick admin bits this week. Um, firstly, my brother, The Last Skeptic, uh, who does all the music for this show, has released a new single uh, called You Make Me Wanna, brackets kill, on which he raps for the first time in ages, um, as well as produces it. And despite him being my brother from exactly the same mother, I really love it. That's not how brotherly things are meant to go, is it? I'm meant to sort of listen to it and go, ugh, a load of shit, sibling crap. But it's... it's brilliant uh he's getting some nice six music airplay um too but do go check it on uh, all the streaming sites or wherever you get your music from i don't know sort of uh maybe sort of sit next to someone playing it loudly on the bus whatever you think uh also if you're in london in august please don't forget to come and check my new stand-up show at the Canada fringe on the fourth and fifth and again link to the tickets is in the pod blurb efficient right this week's show uh, has a chat with tom Salinsky, co-writer of brexit the play yes we're delving into art i got my melvin bragg on um plus Plus, there is a tiny little look at the free BBC licence fee cuts for the over-75s. Uh, the cuts weren't free. They're cutting the free licence fee. Oh, it's almost like a tongue twister, but not. Um, anyway, what's going to happen if old people have to pay to access jokes that will make Nigel Farage upset? What is the world coming to? Except they won't, as that's radio, so that joke totally doesn't work. Someone call the police! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! All the world's a stage, wrote Shakespeare bloody ages ago. But little did he know just how correct that statement would be 500 years later when the entire planet feels like an endless tragic comedy and one where white men still seem to be playing all of the parts. I also blame a lot of hipster facial hair on Willie Shaketown too, so he sure did all them plays, but he's got a lot to answer for. Theatre and all the other art bits and pieces in that slot under that heading have always had a part to play in politics, uh, whether it's part of the political renewal, like during the Russian Revolution, challenging the status quo, such as the Dardais movement, or aiding it like the Futurists, or just interpreting all the goings-on for the audience, allowing them to digest and understand it in a way that shows it in a new light. If they've been able to fork out their life savings for a ticket, that is. But with a situation like Brexit, where things seem to be completely stagnant while at the same time ever-changing and constantly interesting yet boring all at once, with characters that wouldn't seem out of place in a pantomime, what exactly can art or theatre do with that when nearly everything about Brexit seems to provide its own blend of Black Mirror-level dystopia and comedy that's stranger than fiction, and everything else is trade negotiations, the text of which could bore a severe insomniac into a coma? But at least as a comedian, I get to update jokes every week to the expense of having any sort of life. But what do you do with more permanent art forms like theatre, where the same show has to run for weeks and weeks? And what message is it worth giving an audience who's already losing patience with the subject matter and who will definitely have their own views about how an impossible situation should unfold? And would using a safety curtain upset half the audience who insist that we'd be better off without one and whatever damage may occur will just be fine in 30 years' time? Well, in the case of Tom Selinsky and Robert Kahn, they've chosen to use theatre not only to provide some sense of relief and humour to this stupid, stupid situation, but also a solution. Sort of. Well, if you go see Brexit the play, then you'll see what I mean. I'm not going to spoiler it. I'm not your dad. Currently on at the King's Head Theatre in Islington after a previous sellout London run and Edinburgh Fringe run last year, the show tells the story of new Tory leader Adam Masters, played by David Benson, who has become Prime Minister during the fourth year of the two-year Brexit negotiating period and looks at just how he handles, or rather doesn't, the situation. 
It has had rave reviews and I got to go see the show last week and thought it was brilliant, very funny and above all, really sharply aware of the limits to where Brexit may go, providing an interesting possibility for whoever next leads the Conservatives. I mean, it'll be Boris who'll be forever demolishing the fourth wall mainly by falling into it while lying about something. But let's just pretend it isn't for a minute, alright? Just give us a minute. After seeing Brexit the play, I got to speak to one of the writers, Tom, co-author of the Improv Handbook and producer of the Guilty Feminist podcast, all about the difficulties of writing about something that is still ongoing, what theatre can do that reality can't, and if they chose not to use a backdrop in case someone tried to put a time limit on it. Just a quick note, we recorded in a room at the Kingshead Theatre that they kindly let us use, and it was a tad more echoey than I'd have liked, but it should still be very clear, and it just means that you can pretend, if you like, that we had a chat in a well or a cave. Let your imagination roam free. Also, towards the end, I asked Tom if there was anything I should have asked him, and he said yes, about the cast. So I've shoddily edited that extra bit on the end, meaning some of you might have tried extra hard not to write in to tell me about that shoddy bit of editing, but please don't, as I'll just ignore it, but also just sort of then print it off and feed it to a nonchalant pig. Right, enough of that. Here's Tom. Tom, I came to see the play last night. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it made me laugh out loud a lot, which is always good because I'm a miserable comedian in an audience most days and just never laugh at anyone else's jokes like a grump. Um, in the front row with your arms folded, looking sad-faced. Yeah. I, I know your source. That's exactly who I am. Yeah, front row, no, I hide at the back like a creep. Um, but it was, it was brilliant, and I think the sort of words I used in my tweet, which I'm going to reuse because I've got a very limited vocabulary, um, so I thought it was a very astute uh, depiction of our current times. Um... And I think one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, because I'm very aware that you and uh, Robert Kahn, your co-writer, you've written political plays before. I saw a Coalition some years ago, it's fantastic, um, and you did Kingmaker as well. Why on earth, though, would you choose Brexit as a subject? Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you put yourself through that? It actually took a long time to find the shape of this one. We had been talking about writing something about Brexit for a long time, and it took a long time to find the angle. It was about at least six months of just going down blind alleys, it is actually a difficult thing to tackle. And we kept trying to come at it sort of sideways. Uh, when Theresa May had that disastrous general election, we thought, well, is there something to be written about the Tories running a minority government? And that might have some interesting things that we could play around with. But actually what eventually attracted our attention is just the, the very fact that Brexit is an almost insoluble problem. Uh, and that gave us the, the key metaphor for the play, which is uh, a chess metaphor, because we're extremely bothers, uh, which is uh, Zugzwang. So this is a chess turn for a position where there is no good move for you to make, but unfortunately it is now your go. And that is basically the position which Theresa May has found herself in, which any future Prime Minister will find him or herself in. There is no good move. And that is horrible for the country. But as a dramatic situation, it's quite fun. Sure, I mean, it was amazing, actually, when, when the, the term Zugzwang comes up in the play, and uh, no spoilers, listeners, um, I was amazed that I haven't heard it before in the context of Brexit, because it suits it so perfectly. A few other people were passing it around, subsequent to us doing this play in Edinburgh. Uh, I don't know if there's any actual cause or effect there. <laughs> right. It feels like if it doesn't enter... It feels like, you know how uh, Omni Shambles yes. ended up... If Zutzang doesn't appear somewhere at some point, it'll feel like there's an injustice. Um, what was your... Because what I found fascinating was uh, before I, I decided not to read anything on the play before I came, mm. um, but I found it fascinating that you chose to fictionalise it, which I think is obviously a very clever device... Um, because I don't know where you'd begin with the real characters, but what was, what was your choice between choosing... Uh, I mean, I guess, um, if that's the correct way, but sort of amalgamations of the, of the characters that we see in the Brexit scenario, rather than picking on some of the incredible characters that actually exist. It's just more freeing. 
Yeah, you're constrained by reality. Would Theresa May really do this? Is this the kind of thing you can imagine Boris Johnson or Dominic Rubb saying? But if you invent your own characters, then you can do with them exactly as you wish. And that's just the real reason uh, we can be influenced by some of the gallery of grotesques marching through Westminster, but we're not constrained. And that's what we did with Kingwake, that's what we did with Coalition, it's just sort of our, our process. Sure. And, and is it, I mean, because also I think that the character uh, Simon Cavendish, who's played by Tom Tuck, um, he is all of the ERG in one person. <laughs> yes. um, Diane Purdy, I think, in my head, was a sort of Justine Greening, Amber Rudd, but sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's sort of also a bit of Jess Phillips, and there seems, yes. sort of seems to be a number of, and, and I guess, you know, with a, with a small cast, it's easier to have all the chaotic characteristics in one. That's place. right, yes, because you're, you're, what you're doing is taking. Uh, points of view and trying to personify them. So you hopefully they do come across as well-rounded characters, but you need somebody in the play putting forward this argument, putting forward this point of view, and so exactly you can sort of distill those ideas down into one character. But the play is set uh, four years after the Brexit process started, which we're nearly at. <laughs> yes. We're not quite at. So, you know, in a way, is it... Uh... Is it your sort of prediction of the future? Because obviously the, the play starts with a new Prime Minister in place, uh, who, who in, in the play is Adam Masters. Um, and, you know, we're, we're on the verge of that happening now in real life. So by choosing these kind of fictionalised characters, is that your way of kind of saying this is how the next year may pan out? Yeah, well, I mean, the funny thing is, it, it's, sort of, it's been helpful for PR terms to uh, say, oh, we've had to rewrite the play daily in order to keep up with current events. Actually, the truth is, we had a version of this that we previewed, I think, in March 2018. I think that was the first time we did a reading. It was around about March 2018. Uh, and we haven't really changed it since then. <laughs> We've done some dialogue polishes. And it was actually our key prediction didn't quite come to pass because our key prediction was that Theresa May or whoever would get the withdrawal bill through. Because that was always supposed to be the easy bit. Mm. You know, that was because that only sets out what the transition arrangements will be. It doesn't actually go into any detail about our future relationship with the EU. So everyone thought, well, that's the easy bit. We'll get that through. And then we'll try and figure out what exactly we're going to do. Actually, it turned out trees, and they couldn't even get that through. Uh, So we just had to finesse the language around that a little bit. Because it's now uh, extensions to Article 50 that will just keep moving us on into the future again and again and again. Other than that, basically, (laughs) everything has remained static for about two years. That's fascinating because, it, yeah, I mean, that's a blessing for you in terms of writing. But it's <laughs> yes. obviously, and this is the same I feel with comedy. Well, we we did have this conversation, I think it was probably when we booked this run in, uh, because we didn't know what was going to happen, and we sort of said, well, you know, we can do a play called Brexit. <laughs> 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 it turns out we've been completely overtaken by events, because come on, maybe this is not going away. Yeah, it, but, but you're right, it's, very little has actually moved. Um, and yet again, it's sort of like a, a stand-up world, people kind of go, oh, it's great for comedy. You go, it isn't, because you've got to keep writing about nothing happening. Yes. And actually that becomes incredibly exhausting. After all, there's just nothing going on whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but I mean, sort of the, the, the question I was asking earlier about the, the sort of future Prime Minister, in, in Adam Masters, I, uh, and again, I don't want to give too much of the play away, but he... You know, tries to please all sides, and Jeremy Hunt is currently being called the windsock candidate because he wants <laughs> yes. to be. Uh, did you have any particular <laughs> person in mind with the creation? I think Jeremy Hunt came up, but it was the it was trying to think. So, who is the candidate who's going to win when everyone is so divisive and when taking a stand only puts people off? And I think partly we were inspired by 
what worked for Jeremy Corbyn in the last election and seems to be failing him now, which is just you know, refusing to be drawn uh, and allow every, allowing everyone to think that he's on their side because that's where he seems to be hinting and he doesn't want to give too much away. And so we've got that kind of trimmer politician is probably the one who's likely to be able to, to sail through the middle. Yeah, 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 no, it's great. It's great. I mean, although, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if your predictions hold up now that <laughs> yes. Boris is looking like the yeah, because your character, Madam Masters, is as interesting as he is. He's not a Boris, he's not a Boris thankfully, no. which I think yeah. makes your play a lot more believable yeah. in, a, in, a, in a strange way. We, we um, did do a play sort of based on Boris, but he's a hard character to include, and we did talk about whether he should have a role somewhere, but he's sort of like a narrative black hole. <laughs> he, he warps the fabric of the story around him because he's such a big personality. So you've either got, you've got to make the whole play about him, you can't have him as a walk-on part. And what was the decision to give um, the uh, the character Adam Astor plays, uh, Paul Connell? He's, he's the, the advisor, um, the kind of media figure. Was that based on Nick Timothy, Robbie Gibb, or, or just the general... Because I know, I know that uh, Robert, who you work with, has got political experience. He was a cancer in Islington. He's worked in politics before. Is this based on... Actually, the real government. I in mind it was because um, uh, originally the part was originally played by Mark McShane in right. Edinburgh, so it was actually it was actually rather a different part initially. And if had anyone in mind, it was uh, oh, what's his name? This the Australian spin doctor, campaign advisor. Yeah. But that sort of um, uh, outsider uh, figure, and that got when Adam took it over, it made more sense of some of the backstory. But we lost that element slightly. He became a bit more of an insider, a bit more of a career politician. But actually, that makes one element, which I won't give away towards the end of the play, make more sense. So as, as always with these things, you, you, you gain and you lose. Uh, but I wanted, to do, I wanted to write something for Mike for a long time, and I thought the, the contrast between uh, Mike's uh, North American bravado uh, and a sort of trimmer English politician would be a very interesting dynamic, and so it proved to be. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I bet that was fascinating. Um, but, but I mean, do you do you feel do you and Robert feel that because it's very hard? I feel like with Brexit, and I think again something that your play shows brilliantly is that no one's really in control of anything. Um, but <laughs> events, in, events. Yeah, well, that's it. So, so but, but in your play, I I'd say that the character Paul seems to have more control than almost anyone else. Is that something that you and Robert feel is? how things have been going? Do you feel like the, the, any power that there is has been in the hands of those behind the scenes? Well, it's easy to make good decisions when you're not the one who has to face the public when they go wrong, you know? Uh, it's good, sort of, I think it probably goes back to what Douglas Adams said, you know, uh, anyone who actively seeks out high office should probably be disqualified on that basis. Uh, because anyone who says, I, I think I can solve this, is clearly a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So the, the advisors are... Uh, often have a clearer view of things precisely because they're not the ones in the firing line and they don't have that arrogance of saying, trust me to fix this, you know, uh, come with me chaps over the top. Sure, and quite often they're in a position where the results aren't going to affect them yeah. anyway. So, as we also say in the play, and this is towards the end, but it's not a spoiler, a lot of politicians surround themselves with a host of advisors, so if they don't like what one has to say, they can wander down the corridor and get a more reassuring diagnosis. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Tom in a minute, but first... The BBC, home of some of the most incredible television, radio and online programming. But also, sadly, some things with Greg Wallace in and about five hours of daytime TV where Gloria Honeyford, Gloria Honeyford and Gloria Honeyford explain how if you're old, everyone's out to get you and take all of your stuff. But mostly, it's pretty indisputable how valuable the BBC is and how much it provides as the oldest broadcasting service in the world. It's been described as Britain's most important cultural institution, which it is, although they're lucky as that's partly because I haven't updated my mini-disc collection for a while, so, I mean, it was a contender, do you know what I mean? What other broadcaster has a nickname like Auntie Beeb? A name that suggests that it's both part of most people's families, but also, like a lot of aunties, will cause your mum or dad to get really miffed with it and occasionally bring you things you've never ever wanted and hope your friends never see. Last week, the BBC decided to restrict free television licences for the over 75s, prompting a lot of commentators to always slag off the beam and say how the licence fee should be scrapped altogether to now campaign to get the decision reversed. The Sun, a newspaper so-called because it's best when consumed in a ball of fiery gas, has told people over 75 to boycott the BBC and instead watch Sky instead, where the subscription fee is far higher than the licence fee. I mean, that's quite the effective protest, eh? It'd be a bit like complaining about a high street chain's one-time use of fur by spending millions on the rarest mink garments made by a serial killer and parading outside wearing them all at once on a hot sunny day. The decision means that 3.7 million people will have to pay £154.50 per year unless they claim pension benefit credit, though the threshold for that means sometimes claimants are missed out by a matter of pence and the monthly licence fee cost could knock them into poverty or leave them facing criminal charges. Although, to be fair, they would then get free BBC in prison, so it's not that bad an idea. I mean, it is, though, sort of... It's all, you know, you know what I mean. So why on earth would Auntie B make such a decision that's sure to alienate a large percentage of their viewing and listening base and leave all the Gloria Honeyfords with no one left to terrify? Look, I don't want to shock you or provide any nasty surprises, but <laughs> get this, right, you're gonna, this is going to really blow your mind, it's not really the BBC's fault, it's the government's. What? Not even a flinch, no? really thought I'd catch you out there with some totally unexpected info, but uh, no, okay. Uh, The idea of free licence fees for the over 75s is only 20 years old and came in in 1999, which was, weirdly enough, 20 years ago. Uh, Thanks to exhausted clam and then-Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown. The policy was accompanied by a government pledge to make up the shortfall in BBC revenue by using the Treasury coffers. At that time, the state pension real value was lower than it is now, so the idea was that by easing pressure on TV licence fees, over 75-year-olds would have more money to spend on important things they needed, like, I don't know, water slides and Nerf guns. 
Then in 2010, austerity measures were brought in by the coalition government and the world's worst double act, wobbly-headed boil toy David Cameron and the Mongolian death worm George Osborne, who said that the BBC now had to fund the over-75s concession as part of a plan to reduce the work and pensions budget. This wasn't consulted with Parliament or the public, and while it's very hard to believe, the Liberal Democrats rebelled against their coalition partners and several members of the BBC Trust threatened to resign, and it all ended with the BBC agreeing to freeze licence fee costs and to take over funding for the BBC World Service from the Foreign Office, as well as other costly concessions. Though considering the spate of foreign secretaries we've had recently, this may have been a smart move. I mean, Boris would have insisted all of World Service's content was based on an old map he found from the 1800s, and Jeremy Hunt would have repeatedly forgotten what it was, and may have even assumed he was married to it. These cuts were pretty bad and led the Beeb to cutting BBC Three as a broadcast channel and nearly losing six music and BBC Four before deciding that a lack of 90s sounds and the ability to see how badly people used to dress on top of the pops could potentially lead to a middle-aged uprising, which to be fair would be quite slow and could probably be quelled by a rationing of coffee, but hey, it's not worth the risk. But it did mean that the Treasury promised that they'd suffer no more government funding attacks. And like all Conservative government promises, that was broken in 2015, when the BBC were told yet again they'd have to fund the free licences for the over-75s, with no public or parliamentary consultation about it. You see? Repeats are terrible. The BBC argued that time that if that happened, then BBC Two, BBC Four, all local radio stations and radio news for BBC Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland would all have to be immediately shut down and the government backed down as they realised that closing all those channels would dramatically reduce the stations that let Jacob Rees-Mogg do interviews on them and that would mean they'd have to see more of him in Parliament. So instead they ended the licence fee freeze and changed the rules so you couldn't watch iPlayer without a TV licence. It was then decided that DWP would reduce how much it contributed to free licences over five years up to 2020, after which the BBC would have to fund it and be in full control of the policy. Which takes us to now, and that means that the BBC are currently taking the blame for cancelling free licences instead of the government, which is the sort of plan you'd expect to be announced at the end of a film before the villain is defeated. For the BBC to continue the scheme, it would cost them £745 million, which is a fifth of their overall budget. And as it is, providing them for pensioners who do claim pension credit is going to cost them £250 million by 2021-22. So it's either over F75s pay the licence fee, or the BBC has a much smaller range of outlets. There's been a lot of calls for, to pay presenters less or keep all salaries below £150,000 a year, to which the BBC have pointed out that would only save them £148 million, which is nowhere near enough to cover costs. And then they'd also not have the presenters people like. But paying presenters over a million a year is really, really silly. And let's face it, no one needs or wants Greg Wallace or three Gloria Honeyfords, so that's an immediate saving there. Unlike when the government tried to do it in 2010 and 2015, 190,000 people were actually consulted on this policy, this time by the BBC. And out of them, 52% said the free licence fee to over 75 should go. So as Conservatives like Theresa May or Jeremy Hunt and right-wing commentators criticise the BBC for their decision that isn't really their decision, I'm surprised they haven't overly enthusiastically backed the 52%, shouting that it's the will of the people and then provided no actual plans how to carry it out, while dithering about it for so long, making sure it never actually happens. AGK currently have over half a million signatures for their online petition saying that the government should go back to subsidising the cost but I guess that'll be up to whoever the new Prime Minister is and the Culture and DWP Ministers too. If Boris is in charge I wonder if he'll want to say BBC2 to allow for more Have I Got News For You appearances that he could do or maybe let them all die so there's even fewer TV debates that he'll have to find excuses to avoid. What I do know is that if someone doesn't support all the Gloria Honeyfords they're going to be out of a job and then they're going to have to pay a licence fee too which just isn't right. I mean seriously what type of rip-off Britain is this. And now, back to Tom. Which is also interesting because that Theresa May wasn't like that at all. Well, Theresa it was like Nick, had... and, Nick and Timothy were a sort of double act. Sure. Nick and yeah. Fee, rather. Yes, they were sort of double act. 
Yeah, but even then she didn't apparently listen to them very much no, either. She so. did throw them under the bus, though. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Which I sort of, having heard Nick Timothy speak since, <laughs> I feel is entirely deserved. Um, it's, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I've got to work out how to talk to you about this without giving it away, but I was amazed that you had a resolution to the play, because... <laughs> <laughs> Please have resolutions, you know. Real well, life doesn't. That's it. But but it, how do you? And again, I don't want to give any spoilers. But how do you go about writing a resolution to something that just doesn't? You know, it, we can't see one in real life uh, at all. And uh, you know, I know that obviously that's the benefit of theatre. Yeah. But that, that must have been a tricky hurdle for you. Well, it's Adam's story, uh, and at the uh, yeah, at the end, Brexit isn't solved. But Adam's career problem solved. Sure. Uh, it was it was quite important to me, just as a sort of, a sort of satirical flourish, that Adam fail up because he makes <laughs> so many. It's a it's a rotten hand, you know. No one. I'm amazed that there are at the time of speaking ten candidates to lead the Conservative Party. It's such a poison chalice. It's so toxic. There is very very little chance that anyone who takes this on is going to survive it. Almost no matter what they do. Uh, but yet, yet there are ten candidates, and uh, it's remarkable that anyone wants to do it at all. But nevertheless, he makes so many poor decisions over the course of the play, and I sort of wanted him to be rewarded for that, sure. <laughs> because actually, well, the truth of Brexit is that again, almost no matter what happens, it's not going to be the elite who suffer. It's not going to be the, the politicians. It's not going to be the people with family money. It's not going to be the people who made a fortune in the city. It's going to be ordinary working class people. It's going to be the people who have have the least. Uh, and that needs to be, I think, borne in mind. Yeah. Well, I think also very importantly that the, uh, you know, the, I remember David Cameron with that slogan years ago, if we won't reward failure, and yet since then we've had Chris Graney, <laughs> we've had Jeremy Hunt, we've had all these politicians who continue to rise despite making some of the worst decisions you could possibly make, yes. uh, including sort of Cameron and, and May, you know, which is, uh, and I think it's, it's very, I really enjoyed the way your play highlighted that yeah. in a way. There's another little... Sort of pithy epithet I like, which is um, anyone can make a decision given enough facts. A good manager can make the right decision without enough facts. A perfect manager can operate in total ignorance. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> That's very lovely. Um, yeah, and I don't want to. I sort of. I'm guessing. Uh, I, I don't know if you're if you should reveal this with a play, but I'm guessing you're both Remainers, both the writers. Is that right, or uh, or have you got to? Well, what, I'll, what I'll say is this. Uh, there were a couple of drafts where it felt like we were putting our thumbs too much on the scale. Right. And there are several scenes between the Prime Minister and the chief negotiator in Brussels. And that was a bit where we thought we might be lecturing the audience in very early drafts, and it got paired back quite mm. a lot. Uh, but we did have some people who were uh, very uh, levery uh, come and see that. And those things in particular, they said, you absolutely nailed you. That's exactly what they're like, the bastards. I knew that's, all, that's the kind of conversation they'd be having. So I think we are, we are willing to satirise all sides. Yeah, well, that's what I, I was going to say. Is that I found it interesting that there's not any particularly likeable character. In the, you know, every character's got their reasons to dislike them. Yeah. Um, I'd say that probably... Uh, Again, Tom Tuck's character, Simon Cavendish, probably more so than the others. But it, it, it's still... I thought you balanced it quite well. But I wondered if... If you said you've had leaders come and praise bits, I, I wondered if you've had different reactions from different... You know, the subject's so divisive. Yeah. I mean, Have, we are doing it in Islington, which does help. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's it. Um, 
that's it. And, and I, I mean, also, another interesting question, really, is that, you know, we've got this, this rally against the elite. And even though I know a lot of people involved in theatre, and it's definitely not, it's theatre is seen as elitist yes, now. Um, do you think that's a problem in getting the message? You know, are you just kind of adding to the, oh, then these snobs doing theatre about Brexit? You know, <laughs> how, how hard is it to get a balanced view of the thing, uh, of it all across when, uh, when you're using this narrative? I think if you start thinking on those lines, I think it's just sort of crazy. I think uh, all you can do is uh, write the play that, that you want to write. Uh, I, don't, I think if you start thinking about it in those terms, you just start spiralling. Uh, so it's a very good question, because the answer is I've, I haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> I, doubt we're, I doubt we're helping, uh, but I don't think we're hurting. And maybe if people are fed up with hearing about Brexit, uh, they can come on to this play and just have a laugh about it, rather than having to worry about whether they're getting the outcome they want, what this means for democracy in this country, whether we're all going to be uh, you know, uh, stockpiling tins of beans in order to survive. Well, I, I always think, uh, uh, go for a particularly uh, wanky sort of uh, quote. That I, well, it wasn't a wanky quote, it's a wanky story. But I saw Harry Belafonte do a talk some years ago at the Royal Festival Hall, and it stuck with me forever. But I remember somebody in the audience talking to him about Arts Council funding being cut and the arts being threatened in the UK. This is a few years ago, well, it's still relevant. Um, and he said, arts are the gateway to truth. Arts portray the world and help people understand them. And I do sort of feel like your play had a resolution. <laughs> you know, should we be sending all the politicians to come and have a look at what the potential we've results could be? We've had a few turn up. Have uh, you? Yes, a few MPs. Uh, uh, so... Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Maybe they've not they've not made any comments about if they can borrow any ideas for their. Uh, as a wise man once said, if you want to if you want to send a message, use Western Union. Right. <laughs> That's very fair. That's very fair. Um, and what what next? What's your? I mean, because uh, I guess this play could. Obviously, you're doing a, a run for a month at the That's right. King's Theatre. Uh, King's Theatre. Um, this play could potentially come back in six months <laughs> with no changes. We who don't knows? know yet. Uh, have you got? Have you, uh, are you planning to write more political? I mean, the time yeah. seems really right for. There's a few things in the world. There's uh, an interesting story about three Labour politicians of the 1970s, which has quite interesting resonances for today. Which could be quite a nice sort of chamber piece. I haven't quite figured out how to structure that yet, but it's a really interesting bit of history, which, as far as I know, hasn't been dramatised so far. Uh, and we have uh, made some very early sensitive steps towards writing a musical, uh, which would also be uh, of a political bent, but that's very, very early. So we have to wait and see. Every likes a musical. Every, everyone does like a musical, <laughs> it's very true. I can't believe you didn't do Brexit the musical, Tom. Uh, there were like... a few Brexit the musicals. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a jazz hand song called Backstop in there, so I'm yeah, sure there is. It's, uh, absolutely. It has got, now, this is when I forget uh, David's surname. Benson. Benson, of course it is. And Adam Astill, I... Uh, saw that afternoon in Andy's Safari Adventure on CBeebies oh, when we came to see him in your play and was thoroughly thrown by the difference in character yeah. temporarily after my daughter was laughing at him uh, leaving his shoes in the lion's uh, den or whatever it was. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because this is the third cast we've had and there's been uh, over from Edinburgh to doing it in the autumn at the King's Head to doing it here again at the King's Head there, have, there has slowly been an evolution so now we have five brand new actors but what's interesting is, in at least two cases, we've actually got now people I had in mind when I was originally writing it. Right. Uh, which okay. is really, really uh, exciting for me as writer and director, because it means nobody feels like a second or third choice. And although David wasn't somebody we had in mind, I've admired his work for ages, and as soon as his name came up, I, I went, oh, God, I hope he's available. Uh, because he is just brilliant. 
Uh, so yes, we've got David Benson as the Prime Minister, uh, Tom Tuck, who is a fantastically funny man, uh, as Simon Cavendish, uh, Jessica Fosterhugh, who I've known for ages, who is just tremendous as uh, Diana Purdy, uh, the inimitable and redoubtable Margaret Hayward Smith, who is all over Radio 4 uh, as Helena Brandt. Uh, and, and then Adam Astor, as you said, uh, of fame, of, of uh, East Enders and Hobby City. And what was it you said you saw him in? Uh, Andy's Big Safari Andy's Adventure. Andy's Big Safari yeah. Adventure. Yeah. Uh, yes, of Paul Carnell. Uh, I'm really going to be happy with this cast, and they've done amazing work in just two weeks of rehearsals. Is that all they've had? Oh, my goodness. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell at all. And, and I really do have to commend them, because as I said, uh, well, I know Tom and uh, Jessica and Margaret uh, fairly well, and... Uh, I still hated some of them in their roles, <laughs> which I think is a sign of incredible acting, uh, yeah. watching people you know and like in real life thinking, God, you're an awful bastard. <laughs> Thanks very much to Tom for having time to chat and also to Emma at Mobius Industries for setting it all up and sorting me out a ticket to see the show and to the King's Head Theatre for the space to record. Brexit the Play is on in the aforementioned Islington Theatre until the 6th of July and you can grab tickets for that at kingsheadtheatre.com uh, The text is available via Ober and Modern Plays at many bookshops and the show has its very own Twitter account at Brexit Play 2 Tom is also the producer of the incredibly popular and brilliant Guilty Feminist podcast uh, hosted by the very funny Deborah Francis-White which I'm sure you all already listen to uh, and they're doing a mahoosive live show at the Royal Albert Hall on July the 7th and apparently have a pretty incredible international star appearing uh, so incredible they won't even tell me who it is off the record uh, Spoil Sports I really wanted to know and then I was going to give some awful hint on here and I probably would have ruined it they were totally right um, they've also got a whole heap of other amazing sounding guests like Hayley Atwell um, and I'm sure it's going to be a superb evening you can grab tickets for that at the Royal Albert Hall website thanks to those of you who've recently sent guest suggestions in uh, they've been brilliant and if i don't manage to speak to those people before the show's summer break i definitely will try my best for the autumn but if you haven't dropped me a line maybe you're spending every listen of the show screaming but you haven't interviewed all the people i want you to then maybe realize that i won't hear you if you just scream out loud unless you're my next door neighbors who do that a lot and it's really annoying instead drop me a line at parpolbro on twitter the partly political broadcast group on facebook the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or you could move in next door to me and just yell through the wall, preferably at someone else like they've particularly wronged you, and maybe time it exactly as we're trying to put our daughter to sleep. You'd probably think this is actually quite a silly plan as it would just further persuade me to call noise pollution officers on you, but then you've not realised how adverse I am to form filling and how nosy I am when people nearby are having a row, so it just might work. Saying that, it's probably just an awful lot easier to email, isn't it? <laughs> And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thanks again for giving up valuable lifetime to listen to this, and I hope that you did while also carrying out other useful actions, such as washing your trebuchet, herding your flock of guinea pigs, or maybe filing your axes, as is an annual necessity. And once you've done those necessary tasks and made everything secure so your toddler or loved one won't be found lobbing guinea pigs at passers-by, then why not show your appreciation for this show by giving it a review on your pod app of choice, donating a coffee's worth of pounds to the code for your Patreon accounts, and just generally spreading the good word, which is obviously mellifluous or possibly bombardate. And once you've shouted that in their face with the utmost possible joy, then why not pause and tell them to check out this podcast too? I'm sure they'll be keen to listen. Thanks to Agars for letting this podcast lay its audio hat there, to my brother the last sceptic for all the music, and don't forget his new single, You Make Me Wanna Kill, in brackets, uh, is out everywhere now and thanks to Cat Dave for typing up the linear line notes all of the weeks this will be back next week when Rory Stewart has had to be rescued from a landfill site after trying to carry out a speech from within a bin on a Tuesday morning but instead gets carried away by waste disposal services bye 
This week's show is sponsored by Jeremy Hunt's book of mindfulness to tackle illnesses. Do you want to defeat measles? Then you need to become measles. Climb onto someone's skin and perpetually annoy them until your measles magically disappear after a few weeks. Maybe put some lotion on them as well. Do you want to defeat your asthma? Then you need to become asthma. Stand so close to your loved one that they find it hard to breathe. And very soon, they'll hospitalise you in a way that means you'll be on breathing apparatus, thus defeating your asthma. Do you want to defeat your stroke? Do like a stroke and get arrested after touching people inappropriately on the bus. Jeremy Hunt's book of mindfulness to tackle illnesses. $5.99 or free if you become the book. Become it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.